I've got two options. She said, I can survive or I can thrive. And she said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let it beat me. And that was the point where I said, you know what? That's it. That's what I've got to do. I've got two options, survive or thrive. And so we chose to to thrive and to push through and to do something amazing to support other people who might be going through the same. Hello, my name is Barney and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today, I am speaking to Nicole. Nicole, or Mrs B as her students call her, is an educator who has been teaching for over 16 years. She has worked in both primary and secondary school settings and is currently in a well-being role, making good use of the psychology degree she completed as a mature age student. Nicole is a loving mother of three, and as you will hear during this conversation, they absolutely mean the world to her. In today's conversation, we discuss working from home as both a teacher and a parent of school-aged students during the COVID-19 pandemic. Nicole shares some of her life journey and the values she has learnt along the way as a dancer, university student, teacher and parent. I was also privileged enough to have Nicole share her story of grief and loss as a bereaved parent and how she and her family have grown remarkably resilient through suffering. Nicole is an inspiring woman and offers honest and open insight into her life, which certainly helped me shift my perspective. As always, I apologise for the sound issues over Zoom, and without further delay, I bring you Nicole. Nicole, welcome to Moments of Clarity. It's an absolute pleasure. How are you going? Look, I'm doing well. It's it's definitely been a couple of weeks that um, getting my head around how to best manage uh, the juxtaposition that is teaching from home as well as supervising the teaching of my own children from home. So, yeah, it's it's been a journey in itself, <laughs> but we're getting there. What have you found to be the, the best part and the worst part of that juxtaposition? Oh, undoubtedly the best part is the time that I'm having at home with my family at the moment. This is, you know, we I suppose we have one of those lives where we run the rat race during the week. So I work full-time and teach full-time, get home and we launch into, right, sport training or cheer training or there's always something or a meeting or, you know, and it's just, it's actually been nice to have the pace slow down and I think it's been the welcome pause button that I didn't know I needed. I felt the same way. That that pause button is so, so welcome. And I think there's this almost battle going on at the moment with some people saying it's it's great, we need the pause, we get an opportunity to sort of get back to basics and spend time with family and have that time to ourselves. But then there's that almost let's cancel all of that and get back to normal as soon as possible. This is too much or, you know, the economy won't cope or whatever. What, what are your thoughts yep. behind that? Look, I totally agree. And I think it's it's been one of those things where I've kind of struggled with the whole idea that it's okay to switch off and not be part of the grind. I think I've been conditioned to, you know, that good old Italian work ethic, work hard, get everything done, you know, stay on top of all of your business. And when you're so conditioned to being told that hard work is the only way to have a rewarding life, when you get the opportunity to switch off and sit back, it's um it's hard to get your head around. So there's been a lot of, I suppose, a uh, a lot of internal monologue, I would say, with myself to say it's all right to actually have a day where the only productive thing I do is spend time with my kids and the hubby. That's and that's okay. You know, there's value in that. So that's that's been a massive learning for me. I wonder with that, you know, we work and and we contribute to society and, and being a teacher, both of us are teachers, you know, 
having that job that is rewarding, you know, and and necessary externally to just making money or just, you know, contributing to an economy, you know, yeah. we're actually helping develop people, hopefully, into, into better <laughs> people because of us. So, but really, we do everything that we do because of our family, because of our loved ones, because of the life that we want to live and, and the time we want to cherish. I mean, absolutely. I, I don't know about you, but if I was able to not work and still have enough money, I think that I'd probably do most of, have most of my time volunteering in some capacity or another and really try to, you know, focus on what I can give every day, but really spend time with my loved ones yeah. and doing what I love and, and contributing. I want the world to be a better place, but not that grind, not that rat race. So you've just yeah. said that that idea of trying to find value in yeah. doing less, but that less is spending time with your loved ones. So... That's right. And it's time. It was unprescribed time. And it was time that I don't think I realized I actually really needed. I, I suppose, you know, you, like you said, teaching gives so much of us. And I find that I get home most days and sit back and think on the day that was, and you think of all the successes that you've had with your students. And by the time you get home, you're depleted and you sort of kick yourself a little bit for giving the best of yourself to other people's families. And then you get home and there's not much left in the tank for your own. So I think learning to understand that there's value in that too, it's it's a huge, it's a huge learning curve. And um, I think it's one that I've been happy to sit back and take on board. I think, as we were saying, it was the pause that we needed. Have you always been a teacher, Nicole? I've been teaching for 16 years. Prior to teaching, I um, was studying law, would you believe, straight out of high school and studying in the uh, in the legal area. And I, I despised it, absolutely despised it. I didn't like, funnily enough, the grind. And I didn't like, you know, the concept of everything's billable, everything's chargeable. And, you know, it was just one of those things where it just didn't sit right with me. And I, I'll never forget my year 11 careers teacher when I said to her, um, Mrs. Bailey, I want to be a teacher. And she looked at me, a teacher, and said to me, now, why would you waste your marks on that, darling? And so I thought, oh, okay, so maybe, all right, maybe I can do something better. Maybe there's something better out there. You know, perhaps teaching wasn't as uh, aspirational as I felt it would be. So went down a completely different path and did a semester at La Trobe and went home and said to mum and dad, I don't like what I'm doing. And um, their advice to me was, well, perhaps it's uni that maybe you don't like necessarily, go and work in the field and see whether it's the field in itself that you're, you know, you're struggling with. So I did. And the plan was to do, you know, six months away from uni and working in the field as a, they called me a DA, a departmental assistant, which was a fancy name for making coffee and photocopying briefs. And so I did, I did that. And that six months turned into four years and I ended up working as a um, work cover legal assistant and I loved it, absolutely loved it until I didn't anymore. And that fire and the passion for teaching just didn't go away. And at 22, I went back to uni and at 26, I finished and started teaching and haven't looked back since. Amazing. So you said you loved it and then you didn't anymore. Did. So what was, yep. what was it that you loved? What, what did you enjoy about that? And then what actually ended up making you want to, was it just the drive to want to be a teacher or was it more that you just fell out of love with that job? The teaching, I suppose the the passion and the desire to want to teach never went away. And I loved the freedom that working full-time gave me. And I loved being able to, you know, earn my own money and go and travel and spend my weekends out with friends and just, you know, enjoy that that life that you probably couldn't do so much when you're an 18-year-old uni student, fresh, you know, fresh out of high school and into the, the uni spinning wheel. So I loved that. But 
deep down that passion and the fire and the, you know, I want to be a teacher, it never went away. And I suppose I got to the point where I thought, well, let's just pursue it and see how we go. And I, I adored it. Every placement, you know, every assignment, you know, people would roll their eyes at, at, you know, the mature age students in the back asking the questions. And that was me. And I, I was good with that. I was okay. You know, the mature age, 22 year old student. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. no, it's, it's one of those things that um, I look back and think there's obviously a reason why it worked out the way it did. And I, I got to uni and Funnily enough, I sounds so silly and so superficial, but I always remember as a little girl driving past Melbourne University in the city with my parents and mum would say, oh, Melbourne Uni, it's, you know, it's an amazing place. And it's, you know, they, they had this image of Melbourne University being just this place to aspire to. And I always had it in my head that if I ever went to uni, I'd like to go to Melbourne. And I, um, I put it down as one of my preferences for teaching, never ever thinking that I'd get a sniff in, you know, being out of high school for all of those years and was hoping to go to RMIT in Bandura because that's where I lived close to home. And when the offers came out that year that I applied, I didn't get a sniff from RMIT, but I got an early round offer for Melbourne and I've still got that letter because everything was printed back then. I've still got that letter in a photo album in my bedroom. Oh, unreal. I love that you get the letter <laughs> as well. I, I, I love that sentiment. I remember my mum tells me that she, when he, she got her first paycheck, that she didn't check yeah. it, that she kept it framed. And I, I've always... Oh, I, that's I would, so sweet. The instant I got my first paycheck, I used every single... It wasn't a check, first of all. Do you remember I, what you bought? <laughs> Do you remember what you bought with uh, your first I, paycheck? No, I... I I'm so bad with sort of that sentimentality and that idea of thinking one day this will be a moment that I will remember. I'm very bad at yep. that. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I, I say like I wish. I, I used to go to people's houses and see like movie tickets that every cinema or yeah. every show that they went to on their wall or all these oh, photos, wow. and I had nothing. And I thought <laughs> I should really remember these things and try to keep a memory because my memory is pretty bad as it is. But that's no, that's great that you had that. <laughs> what did you, yeah. do you have? Anything that you collect or, or remember? Do you know what I? I am one of those superficial people. I am the person that I kept my first paycheck. My Actually, it wasn't the check. It was the envelope that contained my $36.40 from Coles. And I remember I purchased The Lion King on video, on VHS, and a chocolate Big M. And I've kept that little yellow envelope that contained my first payslip because that was the first time ever I sort of, I'd achieved something for me. Like everyone said, why are you going to go and work? Why would you go and do that when you're at high school? What stupid. Yeah, but I just, I wanted to do it and I did it and I've still got that bloody envelope. It's just one of those things. I, I, I have this morbid attachment to material things that have the slightest sniff of sentimentality and I've been like that forever, forever and ever. No, I do. I, I think there's value in that for sure and it's what you attach to it. It's not just the object. It's, I mean, that's worthless to anyone else but yep. to you it means something. So that's why it, it's special in that regard then. Yeah, you know, hugely yeah. valuable. And I, I think I'm getting worse as I get older and I think I've gotten even worse again after becoming a mum. Things that you get, you know, sentimentally attached to, all their little firsts and their milestones and the things you want to keep, it's just I, I'd probably need to build another house to contain all of them. But I don't know. I think it's it's... Happiness in the little things, I guess, but learning to separate that that doesn't necessarily have to be material is something that I think is a part of my current journey too. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to go back to your days growing up. Where where did you grow up? You said <laughs> you mentioned the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, I did. I did. I grew up family. in the northern suburbs. I did. I was a first-born child to mum and dad who were first-generation Australians, but you know, very much a family that stuck to our traditions. And so our Sundays 
were spent, you know, at Nonna Nonna's house with the cousins and we'd go from one Nonna's house to the other Nonna's house and do lunch and do dinners and um, I suppose my closest friends growing up were my cousins and funnily enough still are, I suppose, the people that I look to for, you know, my, my inner circle, they're my family. So I suppose they're the place that I draw my strength. They're the place I probably push away the first two when, you know, things are all going down south because, you know, they know me and they know what I'm like. So I feel confident that I can say just in that space. But look, we, we're a pretty tight-knit crew and I think that having those people around me has shown me that, you know, when the chips are down, there's there's always people there to support and to, to boost you up when you need it and to offer that support or that space when you request it. So it's, um yeah, it's a pretty pretty intense little circle, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I think most sort of Italians or sort of Mediterranean yes. <laughs> um, people would feel the same way that, you know, it's it's intense, it's close-knit, but it's, it um, it's unique. You know, it really is you know unique. each other and, and, and there's that closeness that's amazing and I have that with my cousins and share that with them. So it's it's a special thing that a lot of people don't get. You know, I haven't seen my cousin for 10 years. I couldn't imagine that sort of thing happening. But I guess, you know, yep. everyone's got their the things that they love and do and, and the special attachments that they have. So it's, yeah. That's right. And, and you know what? It's one of those things that um, as you get older and things start to happen in your life and, you know, things pop up from time to time and you sort of start to wonder, you know, why we are the way we are and why we have these close-knit relationships and how on earth we, um, you know, we survive the craziness. And I don't know. I think I ask a lot of questions sometimes about whether it's a relationship of dependence that I have with the people closest to me or whether it is really just an interdependent thing that we really do just need each other. Did they have any influence in you wanting to be a teacher? Did they have an influence in that or was it your your schooling that gave you that drive or parents? What what made you say, I want to be a teacher and then you're almost shattered by the comment that, <laughs> no, that's not good enough and then you ended up going yeah. back that way anyway? I don't necessarily know if I have one inspiration necessarily, but I remember, <laughs> you're going to laugh at this, being a little girl playing with my dolls in my bedroom on the weekends and categorizing my books according to the Dewey Decimal System and doing Book of the Year awards with my doll students in my classroom. Mum, funnily enough, talking about sentimental attachments, still has my golden books with my little decimal uh, my decimal system categorization on them. And that's how I used to spend my weekends, playing schools and playing libraries. And it was just something innate, something innate. And then I grew up dancing all my life. So I danced for 23 years and got the opportunity to start teaching doing that. And I just loved it. I it, it gave me energy. It gave me a real feeling of accomplishment when somebody could do something that I had shown them how to do it. That never went away. And I had a teacher in year seven, she, funnily enough, a year seven English teacher, which is what I do right now, that I'm still in contact with. And she, she was the most... I don't know if inspiring is the right word to use, but she just had this fire about her. She just used to come in and banter with us and make us feel like, you know, it was just a real little family in that room. But then when it came time for teaching, Mrs McKenna would get it done and get it done really, really well. And I always had that image of if I ever wanted to do this, I want to be a teacher like Mrs McKenna. So I guess it is in a way inspiring and I guess she was my inspiration but I don't want that to sound facetious. I don't want, you know, you know, people sometimes put, you know, oh, it's my inspiration. You put them up on a pedestal and it's easy for them to then be knocked down. But she just was that person that she sort of 
you know, when you, there's always someone in the back of your head that you hear their voice when you're having, you know, conversations with yourself, that was her, it was always her in the back of my head. Um, and we're still in touch now, funnily enough, we still keep in contact and, you know, she's seeing my little family grow up, which is pretty amazing. So yeah, quite a journey. Wow. That was when you were in year seven. When I was in year seven, in 1993, don't judge. <laughs> no, no judgment there. I was only four, but no judgment. Um, <laughs> on, yeah, so that's amazing that you've kept in contact. Did you keep in contact yeah. during school or did you go back once you were a teacher? How did that work out? The power of social media. So we were, I think it was a reunion. I think my 10-year reunion came up and I couldn't go to that because I think I was on my honeymoon, which, yeah, I would have been on my honeymoon and I couldn't go. And then I saw her name on the list of attendees and I thought, oh, I'll send her a message. And we've been in touch ever since. It's just, you know, something that never went away. She's just been super supportive, you know, throughout my career now, offering advice and, you know, even even as a mum. So just being there with, you know, a little parenting advice and it's, it's been lovely. It's been really lovely. So social media used for good. How good's that? Oh, yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. So did you want to contact her to say that she inspired you or, or made you the person or helped you form into the person you are today? Did you want to thank her in that way or was it just you I, wanted just to touch base? First, I just wanted to say hi because I didn't want her to feel overwhelmed with, here, I'm going to put all of this on you and I didn't want to overwhelm her with that praise. I sometimes feel like, you know, when you feel a particular way about a particular person, dumping that all on them at once, it's a lot for that person to carry. So, you know, at first it was just think of you often, I hope you're well. I used to love coming to your class. And so it was, you know, just lovely, just polite conversation. And then, um, you know, some things popped up in my life about five years ago and she reached out to me and just asked me simply, how are you? How are you doing? And it snowballed from there. I sort of poured out my uh, my feelings to her and said, you know what, you just, you were the person that gave me the drive to do what I want to do. And, and I want to get back to doing that now because I've got that fire there. So I, it was, you know, only five years ago, really, that I had that conversation with her and said, I, I want to go back to do what I, what I love doing. And I want to do that because you gave me that fire to do it. So that was a pretty beautiful moment. Yeah. So what is it that you love doing? What What is it that you have, it's still in teaching? Absolutely right. Absolutely in teaching. And, you know, I, I saw it today, funnily enough, it was an 8.45 live class with my delightful year eight students. And for the first five minutes, no one was there. I was on my lonesome and I muted the microphone and turned off the camera. And then all of a sudden that, that little voice pops up and, hi, Mrs. B, I want to ask you a question. And you sort of have that one-on-one with explaining to a student and they walk away and, you know, she sort of said to me, oh, I get it now. Thank you. And it's one of those things that you hear people talk about with teaching and you think, oh, you know, those aha moments and it's all very Oprah-esque. But there's so much, I don't even know the right adjective to describe it. There's so much warmth and excitement when someone actually goes, oh, I get it now. And you know that's because you help them get there. You sort of, you know, rode around the windy roads with them but you know you got there and um that's that's pretty amazing so that over 16 years for me hasn't faded in fact it's probably only getting stronger now so you've taught straight or you would have had a a, a break with having children of your own now so you would have had some breaks in between so quite a few breaks so I started off as a uh, as a prep teacher started off as a prep teacher and did my time with the teeny ones which was so rewarding but man that that is exhausting work and anyone who teaches prep for an extended period of time in my eyes should be granted immediate sainthood 
<laughs> it's uh, it is quite the job. And so when I had my first child and took my six months maternity leave off, when I went back to work, I said, I, I love my job, but I don't want to teach prep. I don't want to have to have babies at work and babies at home. It's too much baby. I can't do, you know, all the babies. So gosh, from prep, I sort of ran the gamut and have taught everything since, including English as an additional language, even a stint at art. I'm the least artistic person in the world and they gave me an art class. So it's, yeah. And then a couple of years ago, I decided to jump ship from the school that I'd been at for 12 years and found my way leaving the primary system and working at the biggest school in the state. So yeah, (laughs) new learning still, even this far down the track. What's it like being a parent as well as a teacher? Do you think that you get to know parents even more and and understand what they would be going through? Or is it because your parenting skills might be so different from others that you actually end up just shaking your head and questioning what's going on a bit more? As someone that doesn't have children myself, I wonder when I'm going through, I just don't know what it's like. So I, I I can't judge or when I do start to judge, you know, and then you also model yourself on those parents that you say, wow, you're doing a fantastic job. What, what is it like as a parent? What's that process like? It is all of those things. And sometimes, you know, you've got to find it, you find it a little bit hard to check your judgment and you've got to take a step back and think about, well, just because I might do it differently, doesn't mean it's wrong. Or as you said, see someone who's absolutely killing it and say, I'm going to do what they're doing. So it's definitely a bit of both. And I think sometimes, yeah, I really have to consciously check that that judgment and make sure I don't, you know, let that cast how I might interact with the student, I suppose, or even the way I interact with my own kids. Um, you know, sometimes, particularly in the role that I have at the moment, where there's a lot of well-being stuff that you deal with from day to day, sometimes you come away from work feeling like you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders because you know that a child that you know really well is going home to a situation that is just, you, you wouldn't dream it. And you come home to, you know, your lovely home with your husband and your three kids and your picket fence. And, you know, your kids are bantering with each other and they're they're fighting and it's the, the usual stuff. And then you want to lose your mind. And then you stop and think about what that poor kid at work is dealing with. And then you say, okay, well, it's really not so bad here at all. So it's, um, it's definitely one of those things that actually Mrs. McKenna, I remember she said it to me when she found out I was pregnant with my last child. She said, teaching is one of the best things you can do if you want to learn how to be a parent, not so much how to be the right kind of parent, but the wrong kind of parent. And she said, you know, you'll see things that you think, oh my gosh, you know, you just, you, you can't believe that students go home and deal with the things that they deal with sometimes. And so she said, you'll take that on board some days and some days that weight will be really, really hard to carry, but you've got to be able to find the place or the people to be able to share that with and don't carry it for them, but know it and support them. So yeah, it's definitely one of those jobs where you can't just go in and expect that it's just, you know, drill and skill. It's certainly, it's certainly a lot more than that. There's a lot more heart than I ever anticipated there would be involved in a job like we have. And that heart is something that you can't, get on an exam at the end of year 12 to show that you're this expert that should do law that hard that's right you know (laughs) I mean law can be full of heart as well depending on what you do totally not not saying anything against that but you know teaching is more than just the grade you get or more than what the test result will show it it's so much more how have you found that you've had to navigate the diversity and there's the absolute uh, mayhem that teaching is from 
the, the highest of highs, the lowest of lows and everything in between? I think it's such a human job that you go into it and you really want to interact with people in the way that you'd expect people to interact with you. And, you know, at the end of the day, yes, there might be 25 teenagers in your classroom, but they're all someone's baby. And so you want them to go home at the end of the day feeling like that they've been, you know, treated well and heard and understood. And that connection, that ability to, you know, have those heart-to-hearts with students or, you know, support them through their worst or cheer them on through their best, that's um, that's the part of the job that right now I really, really miss. I miss having that interaction with them. I miss being in the classroom with them. I miss, you know, having that opportunity if they've had, you know, a rotten morning because it's all gone pear-shaped at recess to come back in and press that reset button together and send them off with an okay attitude for the rest of the day. That's we're at the human coalface doing what we do and it's it's super rewarding, but it's also, you know, sometimes it can be a heavy burden to bear. But, you know, I, I don't know if you feel the same, but I, I wouldn't have it any other way. So you started teaching, I I'm, won't do the maths, what year did you start yeah. teaching? Uh, my first year was 2005. Has it changed a lot since 2005? You know what, it has, but it hasn't. So, you know, the curriculum's packaged up with different labels and, you know, it's um, you focus on different things. I remember, you know, at one point the um, AIZ, the Achievement Improvement Zones Project, was the thing and everything surrounded the AIZ and, you know, that sort of got packed up and put in a box and shoved away until the next seven-year curriculum cycle comes around and then something new comes along and you learn about, you know, the five E's and, you know, that's it's one of those things that as much as it evolves and as much as it changes, the thing that doesn't change is the thing that I love the most and it's, you know, that face-to-face with the kids and that ability to, you know, see them through the best and the worst. It's, it's the best part of our job. This podcast aims to talk a lot about values and actually yeah. getting to the core of what something is about. And we talked about mm-hmm. that with what is life about. It's not yeah. about the rat race. That hopefully will make our lives and our relationships better or else why yeah. would we do it? And, and oftentimes it actually doesn't serve us. But um, as a teacher, what is it that you hold as those core values and what you think teaching as a profession should hold as the core values when you want to enter it or someone that might be wanting to leave the profession because it's moved away from what they believed or whatever it might be, what advice would you give? Where would you build the foundations of what teaching should be about and how would you sort of measure that? Oh, look, that's it's one of those questions that you could spend months upon months thinking about and unpacking, but if I was to boil it down to one value, one concept and one word that just pops up at the back of my mind to, to, you know, to pass on to people that might be thinking about doing this as a career, it's resilience. This is a job about, you know, being resilient. You know, sometimes you hear it all the time, particularly at the moment, particularly with uh, the cohort of, uh, you know, teenagers that we get to deal with from day to day. These kids aren't resilient. You know, they don't they don't want to try they're everything. They want handed to them on a silver platter. You know, they're not reading their instructions. They've got no resilience. And why? My question is why? What is it that's missing? What are we not doing as parents? What are we not doing as teachers to build up, you know, the ability of these kids to have a go? You know, it blows my mind sometimes how fearless they are when it comes to technology download a new app and have a go at something but you know perhaps ask them to write something in a different way for English and they look at you like well, why you know there's that that fear in taking risks with their learning and I think it comes down to really teaching these kids just 
how to have a go at doing something without fear, whether that's something social, whether it's something, you know, academic, learning related, you know, there's there's huge power in that. And I, I've got Nonno's voice in the back of my head, you know, that, that whole work hard, have a go. What's the worst possible thing that can happen? I always remember him asking, what's the worst possible thing that can happen? So I think that's something that I carry with me into the job. I think it's something I try to carry with me throughout, you know, the, the ups and downs and the bumps in the road. But I, I really feel like that this is a profession that's built on having resilience. 16 years plus of resilience in this <laughs> job. And as a dancer, you said, how long were you dancing? Yeah. Did you say for 20, until you were 23 years. or for 23 years? 23 years from the age of three to the age of 26. That would have had to take some <laughs> resilience there. There would have been some physical, mental and everything else to, hugely, to take on. Hugely. Um, it's one of the, I loved it and I still love it. Um, I even got the opportunity two years ago to go back and, and to perform with a group that I never thought would, you know, have an elderly citizen like me at the time performing with them. But absolutely, dancing um, is was probably the biggest lesson in resilience ever because, you know, it's one of those things that they strive for perfection in everything. You know, your back's not straight enough and your toes aren't pointed enough and, you know, your splits aren't down low enough and, you know, everything's about achieving perfection. And some days, you know, God, I remember by the time I was 16, I was dancing about 14 or 15 hours a week. You get so tired. Some you, I used to get so tired and I remember just coming home at night and saying to mum, I don't want to do it anymore. And she, she'd say to me, but you love it. Why would you give away something you love? And I, I guess it's the same with teaching. I know I've had moments where I've wanted to, you know, close the door on it and walk away and not come back because it's just been too much and too hard. And then you remember why you do it and you have those conversations with the people who understand it and, um, you know, you can't turn your back on it for too long. Nicole, we've talked a lot about resilience and yep. you've needed resilience in your life through some personal stories. Yeah. I guess recently you talked about going back to, was it Mrs. McKenna again and, yeah. and getting advice. What was it that actually happened and why did you need to, to seek that, that's, that rock? Difficult story to tell, but one that I, you know, I sort of have come to terms with it being part of me and it's, it's part of my life and my journey. And it's, um, you know, back in 2015, um, if I want to set the scene, I'll, I'll take you back to, I like to call it before Archer and you'll understand why in a minute. Um, type A personalities and the ability to have all your ducks lined up. And when you think, oh yeah, I got this and everything's going great and you're working your dream job and, and you're married and you've started your family and, you know, you're building your own, your dream house, you know, how many people get the opportunity to build the house of their dreams and everything's going along swimmingly and you think, you know what, let's have another one. Let's add to the family. Let's have a third baby. So we did, we fell pregnant and it was a whole lot easier than I anticipated because it wasn't always that easy for us. And um, we were due to have a gorgeous little boy and his name was going to be Archer James. And you know, you go to that 12-week scan and everything's safe and perfect and you announce it because at 12 weeks, it's amazing. You can announce it. It's safe. It's great. And, you know, everyone's so happy for you and telling you you're mad. What are you going to do with three kids? You're going to be mental or even more mental. Um, so, you know, you, you have the laughs and you go and buy the bigger car because, God, how are you going to get three car seats across your Mazda 3? So you go and do all of those things and then you go to work one day and you're sort of, you know, close to halfway through and, you just don't feel right. And I, I 
I will never forget standing in my classroom and saying to my teaching partner, Sonia, who's one of my dearest and best friends, I said to her, Sonia, I just don't feel right today. Like something's, I don't know, I feel funny. I feel a bit sick. I'm just not great. Anyway, so we got through the day and I rang my obstetrician and said to him, um, I, I'm just not feeling great. I, I, is it all right if I pop in for a scan? So I did. I went straight after my staff meeting. I went to staff meeting because staff meeting is really important. So I sat through my staff meeting just wondering, you know, when can I get out of here? And that five-minute drive from Kingsbury Primary up to North Park Private was the longest drive of my life. I can remember every red light and cursing every car in front of me. And I got to my doctor's office and didn't even have to look at the screen. I just looked at his face and knew exactly what we were dealing with. And he said to me, I'm sorry, there's, there's no heartbeat. And my little boy had passed away and only that day. And I was on my own in that office with him. And my first question to him was, well, who do I ring? <laughs> who do I call? What do I do? And he said, he said, take your time. He said, call your husband and I'll sit with you for as long as you need. And at that stage, Eric, my husband, was in his office in Burwood. So he had to drive from Burwood to Bandura to come and get me. And my obstetrician didn't mind. He sat there for that hour and a half and held my hand and didn't worry about the other women in the waiting room. And he said, look, we're going to go and send you for a really detailed scan to find out what's going on. And he did. And, you know, they confirmed that. And I went back to his office that night and he said, well, you, you know, I'm going to need to induce you. You're going to need to have the baby. So... I did the next day and he was born at two o'clock in the afternoon and there I was going from Miss Taipei personality organised and ducks lined up to a bereaved mum and that's something that I never, ever, ever anticipated would be part of my journey. And so for me at the time I didn't, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I, I didn't know who to call. I remember saying to even the people in the hospital, can I have visitors? Am I supposed to have visitors? What am I supposed to do? And it's funny because I remember saying to mum, you know, what are people going to expect me to say? What are people going to expect me to do? And I think that goes back to that good old Italian thing. Don't say anything to rock the boat. Don't say anything to make people talk. Don't say anything to, you know, disturb people emotionally in any way. It's all about, you know, that perception that you've got all your ducks lined up and I clearly at that time did not and so I wasn't thinking straight and I remember having my door open to visitors and we hadn't even seen seen him at that stage which was just horrendous anyway so we got through that and then when my brain was a bit clearer the next day we made some decisions and went home and told the kids what had happened which was strange trying to explain that mum's not having a baby anymore and you're not going to have a little brother anymore because you know he's he's passed away so I think that was probably the most difficult conversation I've ever had to have with a two-year-old and four-year-old trying to explain that but it's funny at the time my eldest cousin who's like my big sister and my best friend was going through chemotherapy for breast cancer and this was after having her parents house burned down um, and taking her parents in and going through you know a messy a messy breakup and having that you know get back together again and and then also you know my other close friend and cousin on the other side of the family also going through um, a really messy breakup and you know having these people around me going through things and I remember looking at my eldest cousin going to work every day full-time in the midst of breast cancer treatment and she said to me I've got two options she said I can survive or I can thrive and she said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let it beat me. And that was the point where I said, you know what? 
that's it. That's what I've got to do. I've got two options, survive or thrive. And so we chose to to thrive and to push through and to do something amazing to support other people who might be going through the same. So we started volunteering um, with an organisation called Pregnancy Loss Australia and it was my aim to provide the hospital that um, Archer was born at with a cuddle cot. So they didn't have one at the time that I had him. So when he was born, we didn't get to spend much time with him at all in the hospital. And I didn't want any other mum in my local area to have that experience. So head down, bum up. We threw ourselves into volunteering and raising the money. And funnily enough, on his first birthday, we'd raised the money and we delivered that cuddle cot with his name, you know, embroidered on it to the hospital. And that's that was our way of saying, okay, so awful things happen to good people, but survive or thrive. So that was our way of giving back and, you know, having a little legacy for him. And it, it's only us that ever met him and knew him, but you know, that's that's what we wanted to do to remember him. And so that in itself was my biggest lesson in resilience, watching the closest women around me go through things in their lives and being nothing but resilient gave me the power to say, I'm going to be all right, I've got this. And, you know, from every little trivial thing from then on has now, you know, it washes off. It's It's those little things now. And you hear people, you know, whinging about the little things that happen from day to day and making mountains out of molehills and you just want to say, you know what, it's, it's really not so bad. It's okay. You'll be all right. It'll be okay. You, you know, sometimes curveballs are going to be thrown at you and you can't be prepared for them. You can't be organised. You've just got to deal with what comes in a way that makes you proud of how you dealt with it. And I think that's that's how I'd like to think we dealt with that card that we were handed in 2015. Oh, that's it's a beautiful story out of a, a absolutely horrible event, Nicole. So thank you for sharing. Can't be easy. Definitely not easy, and it's one of those things that I think now, when I look back, volunteering probably served two purposes for me. One, as you know, the ability to see something good happen from something terrible, but also a way to channel my grief because I don't think I was comfortable dealing with it you know, so openly I wanted people to perceive me as having my shit together. And I very clearly at the time did not have my shit together. So that was a way for me to sort of, to wade through it. And, you know, there's a lot of learning that comes with it. What One thing that I didn't expect was that when you get welcomed into this community of bereaved parents, there's competition in grief, you know, oh, your story is not as bad as mine. I lost my child at the age of 25. Um, I had 25 years with my child, so my pain is worse. Or, you know, you didn't go all the way with your pregnancy, so you didn't you didn't give birth to a full-term baby. So, you know, your pain can't be as bad. And that to me was, that blew me out of the water, that there's competition in grief. Humans are fiercely competitive by nature, but the, to have people compare pain over situations that no one, no one should ever go through, to me was just mind-blowing and so a lot of reading and a lot of talking with friends and a lot of counselling to get to a point where I kind of now understand that pain's pain and grief is grief and there's no comparing there's no competition it's just you can't define your loss by the depth of somebody else's you've just got to have strategies in place and do the things that feel okay for you and I'm okay that, yeah, I, I grieved in a way that was okay for me and I don't have to compete with anyone about it and I certainly don't have to feel bad that somebody has it worse than me. Pain is pain and really all pain's the same. 
Yeah, it's heartbreaking to know that humans that have suffered pain and understand what pain feels like can still project that in a in a way that isn't yeah. empathic and is actually quite selfish look, in a way. I, you know, I don't, I, I, yeah. Look, I, it can come across as selfish. I certainly don't think it's spiteful. I think that everyone just wants their baby's legacy to be to be heard. Mm. I think everyone just wants their story to be told. And and you know, death is the ultimate finality and it's not meant to be this way. It's not meant to be that the parent says goodbye to their child. It's meant to be, you know, the way it's meant to be. And I think people just innately want their child's story to be heard and make their voice the loudest because who doesn't want to shout from the rooftops about their own child? So I don't think it's a spiteful competition and I certainly don't think it comes from a place of, oh, you know, I'm better than you sort of thing. But, yeah, that's that was certainly something that, you know, pulled the rug out from under me. I didn't expect that to be existent in a community of bereaved parents, but I don't think um, it's something that is unique to us. I think a lot of people would probably feel the same that have been through the same experience. Yeah, and making connections to other things too, sort of like the coronavirus and people's reactions to that and... Oh, it's thrown absolutely. my world upside down. But then, you know, as people like to say, and, and and it's very horrible for some people. Some people do lose their lives. Some people get really sick. Some people lose their jobs or businesses. And it's mm-hmm. it's horrible. But I think removing yourself almost from the situation and to say that actually in parts of the world, disease is every day and people are yep. losing children based on a disease that is preventable in in many parts of the world. And, you know, so I think it's that understanding that grief is yours and it's 100% yours and it needs to be everything to you. It has to be that way. And, you know, some, there are some days where it's all consuming and there are some days where you need to completely switch off from any news. And in fact, I found the same at the beginning of the coronavirus, you know, when our first term got, you know, the, the pin got pulled early on our first term. And I remember, coming home from that day of work and just from that point onwards I was obsessed with listening to the news I wanted to find out all the data I wanted to find out the facts because that's another thing that changes when you go through something like we went through data and statistics and science means a lot you want to know reasons and you want to know why and you want to know if it's going to happen to me and I was I could feel myself going down that rabbit hole and it wasn't a good thing and so I consciously made the decision to listen to the news once a day and to read my information from reputable sources once a day and that was it that's I I had to limit my exposure because I could see myself going down there what if this happens to me what if my kids get it what if my child's you know I have one child at the moment that you know has respiratory issues and he always has since the day he was born and I could feel myself becoming fearful well if he's still going to school what's going to happen to him like and getting to that worst case scenario I think that's a thing that will always be with me now. So I have to be conscious to not let that happen. So um, being selective about how I was receiving my news and hearing about the coronavirus, I suppose coping mechanism, I guess. But it's, um, yeah, look, it's certainly one of those things that makes you realise the privilege we have that this is something so novel for us. But certainly there are places in the world and people who experience this on the daily and, what a lesson what a lesson that's been you have three children i do now. my eldest is eva eva is 9 going on 19 uh, <laughs> middle child in every sense of the word is will will is 7 and is the most affectionate 
but live wired little child you'd ever meet in your life. And then uh, Charlotte Rose, my surprise package, Charlie, who's uh, three and is the most amazingly insightful little girl, most insightful little girl. Like um, she'll go outside and play with the dog and, you know, she'll find a feather and she'll say, oh, mum, look, Archer sent a feather. So, you know, she's the baby that came after him, the baby that wasn't meant to be, but, oops, sorry, she's here. And she's so attuned to him and to his existence. So it's it's lovely. I actually find comfort in that, that she's so connected to this little brother that she never knew or never met. But I suppose without him, there'd be no her. So she's a pretty amazing little monkey. What have your kids taught you? Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that the being attuned and actually keeping you grounded mm. and, and having that special moment. But what do they teach you and what have they taught you along this journey? Patience in bucket loads, <laughs> absolute patience. You know, I suppose I, I can be a little hard on them, I guess, and I think that's because I just want the best for them. I want them to, I don't want them to just be mediocre. I want them to be their best. And so perhaps I'm a little too hard on them sometimes, but I guess they've taught me that there's value in the little things. Like I see the appreciation in their faces when they play with each other, you know, having all three of them home at the moment, spending time together, it's been incredible for their relationship as siblings. And so I see that they appreciate each other and how, you know, genuinely they love each other. And yet, God, my God, there are days when they despise each other and the fights are (laughs) ridiculous. But you know, when I see that really innocent sibling love between them, that's that's pretty amazing to witness. So they're they're awesome. Yeah, the patience would be the biggest thing. <laughs> Learning not to uh, have expectations for them that uh, exceed their their age or their ability, or you know, like let them be kids. It's lovely to watch. Do you find that little bit of your nonno's voice in the background creeping in? With your kids? Constantly, constantly. I say things sometimes and I check myself and go, oh, I really sounded like him. Like He had a really low frustration tolerance and I think I'm very, very similar. He was also an incredibly, incredibly intelligent man, one of the most well-read men I'd know. But funnily enough, he only attended school till the age of nine. So he, yeah, he was, yeah, some incredible kind of guy. But sometimes I hear myself in the way that I... Uh, discipline them and come down on them and I'm like whoa that's that's shades of non right there some of those things just don't ever go away <laughs> just to go back I, you experienced yeah. something that changed your life and, and devastating and, and you know filled you with grief mm. but then through that you changed as a person and, and you're able to probably connect with your family your children your mm-hmm. the love in your heart even more than ever and mm-hmm. I guess that's something to take out from people that experience this because it is quite common for women to to have issues during pregnancy, isn't it? I, I, I'm not Absolutely. over the it's, facts it's, there, but what is the sort of, yeah, situation? one in four. It is one in four. One in four women will go through the experience of losing a baby and that's whether that's, you know, an early miscarriage, whether it's a stillbirth, whether it's um, through complications, um, one in four. And it's one of those things that I, I didn't know that statistic until I was one of them. I think there's still, even these days, a lot of fear around having the discussion about, you know, the things that 
don't necessarily go so right with um, starting a family and with pregnancy. And I think, you know, that whole idea of the 12 weeks is the safe part. So they go to that 12-week scan and you see, it's the, funnily enough, it's the last time you get to see the entire baby on the screen. The last time, the next time that you get to see the entire baby is the day that it's born. Um, and so people think you walk away from that 12-week scan and you've hit the safe part and it's, you know, smooth sailing till the baby's born but unfortunately statistics and real life experience tell us that's not necessarily the case and so um you know to my girlfriends and family members now who announce pregnancies my advice to them is celebrate it celebrate that life for as long as you've got it because from the minute you see those two positive lines on the on the test you're a parent so however that journey looks and whichever you know road it takes celebrate it while you can because it's a pretty amazing time Nicole we've spoken about in the past that you were actually debating whether teaching was for you and and what impact you were having as a teacher and it actually led you to take a pathway to another field is that right Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's funny that I ever considered going back to doing further study with three kids at home and a full-time job, but it was my experience as a bereaved mum that made me think, well, I want to understand why people react the way they react to situations and why people behave the way they behave. I think our experience as bereaved parents with the, the circle around us was really interesting because it kind of went two ways. Those closest to us either really tightened the net and held us up or completely fell away. And I don't know whether that happened as a natural sort of thing or whether it was because my tolerance for things in the past that I would put up with and shrug off just lessened. And so relationships for me changed, friendships changed, connections with some family members changed and look like some irreparable, which is, which is difficult, but I'm at a place where I'm okay with it. And I think it's because I went and did what I did. So if teaching full-time and dealing with three kids and a husband who troubles wasn't enough, I enrolled myself in a psychology degree at Monash University. So I, I, um, I did it selfishly, I've got to say. I did it because I wanted to find out why. I wanted to sort of delve into how people, whether people's reactions to situations were choices or whether people were just wired a particular way biologically. And so that got the better of me and I put the application in thinking, oh, they won't even give me a sniff. And just like when I got accepted into my teaching degree, Monash gave me a gig too. So. I did the degree completely online, which has probably prepared me really, really well for what we're doing at the moment. But it's not something I would recommend for a social person going through a degree so deep, I suppose, in content um, without having that, you know, the people around you to bounce off, which is probably one of the highlights of studying, you know, at uni. So I did it and I decided not only will I do it, I'll push it out. 16 months back to back without a break and I did and it was probably the hardest but most rewarding course of study I've ever taken and boy did it answer those questions for me and 
I walked away with my degree after graduation feeling like I'd accomplished something that I never, ever thought possible. But what I learnt within that course of study was hugely, hugely, hugely life-changing stuff. And I've carried it with me into the classroom. And, you know, we deal with students from day to day that pop up with ADHD and ODD and all of these code words we like to give students. But now I've I've got the why. I know why. And I get the how and the what it might look like and the how it presents and that level of understanding that I think has enhanced my ability to, you know, to do what I do as a teacher. But that wasn't why I did it. Certainly not. I did it purely selfishly because I had questions that I wanted answered and it wasn't enough just to read it in a book or jump on a blog. I I really wanted to know how brains work and now I kind of know and it's really bloody fascinating. (laughs) So yeah, something that I really can say I I did for me and I, I loved it. You said that you now know the answer to the whether it's choice or whether it's the way that you're wired. What what is the answer? Do, is it is it an actual answer or is it like that it's different for everyone? Is that yeah, it's it's different for everyone? The answer is that there is no answer. That sounds mm. so like pie in the sky stuff, but it's different for everyone. People's life experience can literally change the biological and chemical structure of their brain. Some of the kids that we deal with that are from the most trauma affected situations those experiences have biological impacts and you see students you know some of our most difficult and challenging students behaving in certain ways and you remind yourself that it's you know because of what they've experienced and they're forever changed so the study on trauma was really really interesting and how it affects the brain and I suppose it had two effects for me. Number one, the level of understanding that I can take to those challenging students and how I now view the relationships that kind of fell apart after we had Archer in 2015. I, I, I get that was a result of my experience as someone affected by trauma. And I don't think I realised it was something traumatic until I actually went back and did this degree. I just thought, yeah, that's pretty shit. And <laughs> it wasn't great and it was devastating, but you know, those feelings I felt afterwards and those reactions I was having to situations were a result of an event in my life that was traumatic. And I don't think I realised that until I learnt about it. How do you now approach the idea of trauma? Do you approach it with just utter empathy and listening or do you try to fix it? Do you try to give your own lessons when you find someone that might be holding that underlying trauma? Do most people know that they are actually, you know, suffering the effects or, or holding, you know, that that trauma within or are they actually letting it go and, and do you teach or try to approach those situations through your own experience? I think there's certainly a level of empathy that you carry with you when you're dealing with people impacted by trauma. But I, I also think that, look, only looking at it through my personal lens, there could be a whole heap of people like me that don't realise that their life experiences are traumatic and the way that they formulate relationships or make decisions after the point of impact of that traumatic event changes. The, the entire shape of your soul changes after a traumatic event, whether you realise it at the time or whether you realise it years down the track. And I think that you forever see the world differently, you forever make decisions differently. And the impacts of it never go away. 
I think too that for these kids that um, we deal with at work sometimes that are our most challenging kids that are impacted by trauma, a lot of them don't have the support. A lot of them don't have that system around them where they can, you know, seek the professional help or, or offload their um, their innermost feelings. They don't have access to that and that's so vital. And so the fact that the school I work at now has a mental health practitioner employed for senior school students, that made me do a happy dance because it means we're valuing that these these kids can be supported and can learn about the impacts of mental health. It's something that I think all schools should have unquestionably. Like we teach them how to read, we've got to teach them how to read themselves. There's so much talk about the scourge of, I guess, mental health issues, the fact that it's actually causing so many other issues like addiction or, you know, gambling issues or violence or anything that that occurs. And and obviously things like suicide, which are, you know, uh, a real, real issue in Australia, a place like Australia that we, we, you know, and we shy away. It's another thing that we sort of hide behind the curtains as well. We really do. So do you think that things have changed in society that has made mental illness and things and mental illness related I guess issues in society more prevalent or was it just that we were hiding them and now we're a bit more aware and open to discussing them I I get mixed signals from people that say oh this never happened to me or it never used to happen to me but then you 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 hear people open up and they say well everyone had something everyone was holding onto something and we just didn't share it and now maybe that's the thing I think perhaps I think perhaps over time that's you know, as humans, we've gotten better at that. And I think we've opened up the conversation a lot more. And I think that there are people who have platforms that do amazing things to get the mental health, um, you know, the word out there so that it doesn't have that stigma. But I think I'd be lying if I said it was gone. I think there are still people that see mental health as personal weakness. Um, And I, I don't know how we get around that, but I think we have to keep having that conversation I think it's important that, you know, just like we have the conversation about cancer and cancer research and we have the conversation, you know, about about grief like we just have and the things that people go through, we've got to keep having that conversation and it, it starts early. It starts early. Would you say this is your passion area now that you've finished your psychology degree, you're a year-level leader working in wellbeing with students in, in a middle years capacity? Is this your area of passion at the moment and do you see it continuing or do, do you want to do, do you love working personally with students or do you want to get more deeply involved in it on a research level? What, what do you see yourself doing in the future? I think I've learned to be happy with where I'm at and not to be too aspirational. I think what happened in 2015 with Archer has taught me the best laid plans, you know, how that goes. So right now, while I'm doing what I'm doing and loving what I'm doing, I don't plan to change it. I um, I like that I can take a level of insight with me, I suppose, when I have conversations with some of my students. And let's be honest, some of the students that I deal with from day to day are our most vulnerable ones. And so that to me has you know, re-sparked that passion for for working with kids. And, yeah, I, I don't. It's probably, it's funny you've asked me that and I, I hadn't thought about it until you've asked me, but it's probably one of the first times in my life that I actually feel happy with the right now. Like it's it's actually a feeling of contentment. 
with, you know, worry in the background about going back to work because am I going to pick up this virus that, you know, has changed our society forever and ever. But, yeah, I suppose it sounds, it probably sounds a bit, you know, fairy tale like to say, but there's no place I'd rather be. No, that's that's brilliant. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that maybe prior you wanted all those ducks in a line, you know, you wanted to ensure that everything was laid yeah. out and perfect, dotted the Always I's, crossed the T's yep. prior to an event, prior or, or leading up to, you know, something and you learnt in an extremely, you know, difficult and traumatising way that that's not the case many times Spot and other on. people have lessons that are much much smaller or much, you know, in, in different yeah. capacities. But some people, I guess control is one of those things that humans try to, to have. But oh, we're on this giant absolutely. planet <laughs> in a universe that is, yep. uh, you know, it, it may as well be infinite because, we have, <laughs> you know, so and yet, you know, we, we bring everything back to our little little size so i think to to bring yourself into that present and live in the mm. present that's how contentment sort of begins do you have a practice of some sort that helps you keep yourself in check and and align yourself do you do you have to bring yourself back to the present do you have a practice that helps you do that it sounds silly but for me it's the practice of getting lost in a book and it's at the moment i have read for the third time now straight Michelle Obama's autobiography called Becoming and I find that when I surround myself with the stories of people that I look up to I can not necessarily feel okay and feel comfortable and feel like I've you know I've got everything all together but feel okay that I haven't which I think has led me to this feeling of contentment that I currently have. It's okay to not have all the ducks lined up and it's okay to feel challenged and it's okay to go, you know, honestly to the depths of hell because what I've learned that, you know, the other side is there and it's not the same as it was before and it's certainly not, you know, it's not as um, innocent as it was before but, you know, there's, there's beauty in that imperfection and there's beauty in knowing that, you know, this is an interesting journey that we're on, this whole concept that having everything planned within an inch of its life and everything's just going to be so, having that essentially rocked to its core, I'm actually okay with that. And so, you know, I I read the stories of people like Michelle Obama and I read, you know, literature like um, books that Khaled Hosseini has written, A Thousand Slendered Sons and The Kite Runner, and, you know, knowing that these are based on people's lives, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. Those, those stories make us human and, you know, yeah, they're uncomfortable at times and, yeah, you know, you cringe when you think that, my God, this is someone's life, but it's okay. It's all perspective. And like you said, we're just a speck in that infinite little universe, aren't we? And it's okay. It's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you... Look at the world around you, and you and you're you're comfortable and confident in the present, and happy being there, which is amazing. I often get lost in in thought, whether it's the the far away, whether it's time mm. or it's distance, and I, I straddle the line of hope and optimism versus grief and and pessimism, and that might be to do with things that aren't even within my reach. So it's like almost this hopelessness or helplessness at times that you realise that you're actually 
have a lot more power and agency than you think, but then you also can't control everything and things are going to occur to you. And That's right. The flexibility that you have as well. How do you see that? Do you Are you an optimist, a pessimist? Do you straddle it like I do? Or do you just try to not think too deeply about things that are out of your reach? I think they can coexist. I think that we, you know, fall into this trap of either categorising ourselves as one or the other, but I think they have to. They have to coexist. You sometimes have to look at things critically and pessimistically because that's what challenges you and that's they're the learning opportunities. If everything was roses and everything was looked at with, oh, positivity, that level of positivity can be toxic. It can be toxic in that it gives you a false, I guess, sense of, you know, happiness and a false sense of everything's going to be okay because it's not. I mean, you will be, but I think there's beauty in learning that, you know, not everything's going to go to plan. So it's it's certainly okay to look at things pessimistically or critically or, or to judge things in, in ways that, you know, probably aren't so positive. Um, I don't think we need to be either or. I think it's I think it's okay to oscillate, to jump on one bandwagon or the other. What do you think? Oh, I, I'm in the I'm in the middle of that process of of figuring it out. I really do believe it's imperative to feel loss or grief or hurt or pain or if you can't feel it yourself because it's not really occurring to you directly, to put yourself in the shoes of someone else to understand what it might be like for a mother in a poverty stricken nation, you know, or a um, uh, someone going off to war or, you know, mm. someone losing their house to fire or, or struggling with cancer or, or whatever it is that you need to, to, to feel those things, actually feel them. You know, you need to actually yeah. almost weep or, or feel like that weakness and that heartache and you, you need to, you need to suffer uh, alongside people because yeah. then you can help build them up and then they can be beside you when you need help. And that's the way I'm trying to see life, you know, that it's okay to shed a tear. It's okay to actually just fall down in a heap sometimes and then you've got the people that love you around you to, to lift that's you up. Right. And, and and you realise those that probably aren't there and aren't that rock that they're actually holding you back at times that uh, age hopefully brings wisdom yeah. and, and brings relationships that are true so I think it's so important to feel all of that hurt and pain and suffering but not let it keep you on the floor and not let it make you feel helpless. It's actually imperative to rise up and say, look, it's either, as you said, do you survive or do you thrive? You know, what what choice yeah. do you want to make? And I think my mission at the moment, and I know that can sound whatever it sounds like, but the purpose I've given myself and hopefully we'll we'll try to live for a while at least and see what happens, you know, along the road. But it is to use the privilege that I have, use some of the power that I have as an individual with some strength and some connections and some hope and, and some grounding to hopefully improve the lives of someone else, one person, 100 people, 1,000, whatever I can do. And it might be by smiling when you're walking down the street or it could be by, you know, writing a book or whatever it might be. It could be by producing a podcast that helps, you know, 10 people <laughs> through something that, that, you know, this conversation is bound to help someone that listens to this and has experienced a similar situation and maybe has well, never spoken about so. it. So I would yeah. hope so. And you know what? Isn't that 
the joy of this human experience. Isn't that the beauty of it, that you can experience, you know, the ultimate highs and absolute, you know, lowest of the lows and walk away feeling like, you know, it's all right and that you've got some experience that perhaps you can impart to someone else. And even if it's not knowledge or, you know, a a profound something that you say, the empathy and the understanding with which you look at other people's situations, for me, that in itself is the beauty of this human experience that, you know, you realise that everyone's got a story um, and you hear people say things like, you know, be kind to one another. Absolutely. That's, that's, you know, there's no, no greater gift. I think I take that with me into my classrooms. I, I certainly try to take that with me into my relationships with my, my family and my friends. I don't think it's too much to ask of people. We're all on this, on this, you know, crazy ride together. So it's important to experience it however you're feeling it and to take those people along with you that um, give light to that and hold space for you so that you've got somewhere to go when you want to, you know, share those deep, deep feelings of, you know, ultimate grief and sadness or absolute joy and elation. That's, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And I think that conversations like we're having now um, allow people to experience that. So it's important and it's, there's value in it. And I, I hope that, I hope that in sharing, you know, little snippets of my little world has, has made someone feel like for them, it's going to be okay too. Do you decide now when you, when you approach someone, do you feel that this person is going to make an impact on me now? Like, do you, do you walk and and into a room and meet someone and, and they have an energy or they have a, whatever you want to call it, that you just connect with instantly? And and can you define that, what that is when you, when you do see someone? I, I feel like there's an intuition that we all sort of innately possess as people. Um, and whether you, you know, share a smile the first time you meet with somebody or whether it's, you know, a conversation that catches you unexpectedly and you think, I didn't, I didn't think I could have this sort of level of conversation with you. I, I just, you know, friendships or acquaintances that, you know, might have been just superficial at the beginning, you know, there's something that happens or an event or something that you just think this person's on my wavelength or, you know, that's, that person's really warm. And I don't know whether it's um, as you get older that intuition is stronger or whether it's a result of your experiences that you tend to either trust people more or less, which both are fine. I don't know. I guess for me I try to enter every new interaction with a new person that I meet with a level of warmth and openness and um, expectation that, you know, they've got a story too and whether they share or not (laughs) in time, you know, that remains to be seen. but. I think there's beauty in that human interaction from its its very first, you know, the very first one. Talking, you know, talking to you earlier about starting at a new school after 12 years of being at another place, when I got the call to say you've got the job, one of the first thoughts I had was, are they going to like me? You know, at almost 40 years old, are they going to like me? Am I going to make friends? And I, I felt like, you know, I felt like a kid starting high school again. And what I found overwhelmingly was that I really had nothing to be afraid of because the people that I interacted with were just, you know, doing the same thing I was doing. We're all there for a similar purpose, but, you know, they too are there because there's a level of warmth and kindness about them and that, you know, they do what I do because they want to have that impact in someone's life. So I think 
I had that fear wrongly, I suppose. So it's been nice to look back and say, I'm glad I did it. And to think now of the relationships I've cemented in my new workplace as being really, um, you know, super supportive. I'm very, very lucky, very lucky. And I think that's been um, highlighted in this time while we've been working from home, like in the last couple of weeks, just know spontaneously I've had colleagues uh, ring up and say hey I'm around the corner I've got coffee come come and sit in the driveway we'll have coffee or you know it was um, Archer's fifth birthday last week and um, on the day of his on the day of his birthday I had two of my colleagues rock up with uh, coffee and a big bunch of flowers and just wanted to come in and sit and say all right let's spend some time together that was hugely um oh god so needed that day so needed just to have people to sit with and to have a laugh with it was just beautiful so yeah I I couldn't be more thankful and I think too that allows me to rise up for them because you know that's that's like I said the beauty of this human experience that there's peaks and there's troughs and what they gave to me I can give back when it's when their turn to you know be lifted We've just gone past Mother's Day as well as Archer's birthday. Was that a, a yeah. tough week to to go through? Always is. So he, he passed away on a Wednesday um, and the Mother's Day was that Sunday. And I, every Mother's Day since, all day, I have his little yellow beanie that he wore when he was born and I carry that with me all day long. So that's, that's my comfort every Mother's Day. That and the fact that I got made a high tea in bed was probably, you know, <laughs> wasn't so bad, <laughs> wasn't so bad. But certainly there are moments where, you know, you have those what-if questions and what does it look like and what, what would it have looked like? And then I see Charlotte running around and I realise, well, it wouldn't look like Charlotte. So, you know, people say it and it sounds clichéd, but there's there's reasons for how things happen and why they happen and as painful and as deeply life-changing as it was and as I said before it's the kind of stuff that changes the shape of your soul and it did that for me and it probably sounds silly to say but I wouldn't have it any other way. The name of the podcast is Moments of Clarity, Nicole, and Mm -hmm. I always end our conversations with the question, have you had a moment of clarity recently? It's um, a question that I've been thinking about since you and I talked about having this conversation together as part of your podcast. And I think for me, there's not one recently that I can think of, but rather a group of moments of clarity that have led me to feel the way I feel at the moment and to see the world the way I do at the moment. And some of those come from my experiences, good or bad. Some of them come from the people that I, that I admire, like you say, Michelle Obama, and some of them come from the beauty that has been stepping back these last few weeks and just watching things unravel without having control over them and without having the plan in place. And if I could sum them all up to, to say how they've all worked together or what they've led me to feel, I think I would say that comfort is the word that I would use. I'm comforted. I'm comforted in knowing that, you know, things can happen in the world that can change people's lives for for better or for worse. And I'm comforted knowing that there's support. I'm comforted knowing that there's the opportunity to share. And I'm comforted knowing that, you know, from the depths of the, the worst possible thing that can happen, that it'll be okay. So I think my moments of clarity have led me to believe that there's comfort 
workers' comfort. Thank you, Nicole. It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to, to share a little bit of me. It's been a lovely conversation to have. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast, or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.